I'm Wendy Irwin, and I will be reading the scripture this morning. Listen for the word of God. Today's Old Testament reading is from the book of Malachi, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. See, I am sending my messenger to you to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Today's Gospel reading is from the Good News according to Luke, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the great region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Enter in by the power of your living word. Remove all obstacles in our hearts to you and life in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were paying attention, you'd have noticed that today's reading from the Good News according to Luke starts out differently than most of our Advent readings. Here we begin with seven of the world's most powerful people. Tiberius, Pilate, Herod, Philip, 
Justinius, Annas, and Caiaphas. Seems like a strange place to start any story, especially during the Advent season when we prepare for the coming of sweet little baby Jesus. But here we are, this world's seven, most, seven of the world's most powerful people. Now, why would you do this? Why would you start a passage like this? Was Luke just a history buff? Maybe. It's interesting to know the history behind things. Names like this are pretty much meaningless to those of us today, but in the world of the New Testament, these guys are kind of a big deal. The first guy is the biggest deal. Tiberius is the emperor of the Roman Empire, the world's largest superpower. Most of the ancient European world is under his control, plus a good portion of the Middle East and Northern Africa. Over one million and a half kilometers of conquered territory under his boot, and he's got the world's toughest and most technologically advanced military at his disposal, all inherited from Emperor Augustus Caesar, adopted nephew of Julius Caesar. People treated Tiberius like a god because he was. The whole empire kneeled at his feet on account of his Greatness. Temples dotted the landscape with his image. The next four dudes on the list, Pilate, Herod, Philip, Licinius, are Caesar's imperial appointees. Pilate being the most famous as the governor of Judea and the one under whom Jesus was crucified, according to the ancient creeds. They all have power given by Caesar, but a lot less in terms of geography. And the last two, Annas and Caiaphas, are the high priests of the Jerusalem temple. They oversee a great institution and network of religious institutions. Despite their corruption, they still hold sway with believers all over the ancient world. The interesting thing is that, aside from Pilate and maybe Herod, we don't really know these two guys very well. But in Luke's world, all seven, from Tiberius to Caiaphas, are household names. It's like throwing around names like Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Barack Obama, Justin Trudeau, John Horgan, Jeff Bezos, Franklin Graham. This is like the People magazine cover, you know, all the world's most famous people show up in one place in Luke's Gospel. They dominate cable news stories and soak up social media feeds. They're punchlines for John Oliver and occasionally guests on Jimmy Fallon. Or if you don't know Jimmy Fallon, maybe uh, maybe uh, an earlier person like, oh no, now I can't remember. Uh, Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson, there you go. <laughs> Hi-o! Uh, yeah, no, I know who Johnny Carson is. Um, they dominate all things political and religious. They're the ones who supposedly make history and mold it in your image. Insert your politician, cleric, or billionaire in here, and you get what Luke is getting at. Notice this, though. Notice this. We've got this list of all the world's most famous movers and shakers circa 29 AD. And at the end of the list, though, with a nice little comma in the English version, we're told that the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The word
word of God came to John. The word of God, we're told, the self-revelation of the divine, it just skips all seven of these people over and lands in the wilderness instead. They're in charge of the world. If anybody has power, wisdom, ingenuity to get things done, it's them. Nobody doubts that. But the word of God, it skips the imperial palace, the governor's mansion, Congress, parliament, the cathedrals, and all the corporate headquarters world over. It takes the exit before New York, Beijing, London, Vancouver, or Rome, and goes to the desert instead, to the wilderness. The word bypasses all of the big seven, and it rests on a zero in the middle of nowhere, where this complete nobody, John. Now, John's probably not the guy you put in charge of your PR departments or put on the front page of your website. He's this bearded, disheveled survivalist type wearing a camel hair jacket and living off the grid. No cell reception on a diet of locusts and honey. The pick on the PowerPoint is actually probably overly flattering of John. But this guy is the guy that God shreds all the other resumes in favor of. The word of the Lord bypasses the heights of power, strength, and success and rests on a nobody in the middle of nowhere. Now, what is Luke getting at here? What's Luke's point? Is it that all rich and powerful people are irredeemably bad? Or to make a fashionable contemporary claim that the poor and vulnerable are inherently virtuous? If you read the rest of the Bible, you'll know that human nature is far more complex. But there is something to be said that power, influence, wealth, and many other things of these world, this world, these can, more often than not, lead us to conclude that we don't need anything or anyone like God. Or if we need God, God is a sort of wellness technique to bless what we're already doing or fix a problem we already have. If our lives are settled enough, comfortable enough, if we have enough control over our circumstances, we tend to think like Tiberius and his minions that we are gods. That we have no need for God when you are a god. So the profound point that's being made here is that then is the same point that's made on Christmas Eve. If you know anything about the Christmas story, Mary gives birth to Jesus in a manger among barnyard animals because the inn was it's not that God doesn't love the privileged or the powerful it's that too often with the privileged and the powerful there's no space for God to enter the point that Luke's making is that God cannot be born where there's no room at the end God needs a way God cannot be born or perhaps more appropriately I want to be more theologically appropriate God chooses not to be born where there is no room. More often than not, 
Our souls are filled to the brim with the worries of this world. Money, power, status, control, and perhaps most recently, the desire to live a safe and settled life. Sheltered from the inconvenience of other people and their problems. But God wants the space to work, the elbow room to get at us into your life and mine, but too often God is crowded out. The question now is, of course, how do we make room? Where will God find his way into our lives? And John provides us with an answer. Actually, John provides us with an answer given previously by the prophet Isaiah seven centuries before. Prepare the way of the Lord, he says. Make straight his paths. And what does John mean by that exactly? Well, we're told that when the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness, he started dunking people in the Jordan River. A baptism, we're told. A baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. John says that one of the ways we prepare the way for the Lord is by baptism. By baptism. Now, clearly, baptism isn't a magical charm that if we're baptized, we'll always do good, always do what's right, always hear God's word. I mean, Hitler was baptized. I don't know it either, but maybe Hitler was confirmed. But when we're, what we're talking about, though, is the baptismal life. The baptismal life. Not just a single event in time where we are dunked in the water, but a life lived following. Like a marriage. Your marriage is not just your wedding day. It's only the beginning of your life together. Baptism isn't a rite of initiation for kids like a gender reveal party. It means, really, all the stuff that church is about. Baptism is a sign and seal of our belonging to God, one we turn to over and over and over again. It is the true definition of who we were created to be and who we are in Christ. The great reformer Martin Luther said that whenever you wash your face, remember your baptism. So when you get it up in the morning, just get into that singing, thank you, Lord, for my baptism. Or if you have kids in the tub, say, remember your baptism. Because baptism proclaims the essence of the faith to us. And the baptismal life here, according to John, means two different things. On one hand, it means repentance. Repentance. And on the other, it means the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is probably the easier of the two to kind of invest ourselves in, especially if we're the ones being forgiven. Right? Our baptism means that we are a forgiven people. It's good news because it means we can tell the truth about our lives and our world, our brokenness, our falling short, our sins. It's interesting because the image that we actually have on the screen is from a medieval altarpiece where John, who was long dead by the time Jesus was crucified, 
is actually pointing at Christ on the cross. See that finger that he's pointing? He's not just wagging his finger at all of us, which would make perfect sense, of course, because it's John. But John is pointing at Christ on the cross. And the forgiveness of sins. This is what he's pointing at. Baptism means we are cleansed by grace. The acknowledgement of that we ain't who we are supposed to be. But we can be honest with ourselves and others knowing that our confession is met not with punishment or otherwise, but with forgiveness. The way in us is prepared through humility. Through humility. And the other part is repentance. Repentance has a little bit of a bad rap, right? If I was to come out to you and I said, hey, Cheyenne, I'm just going to point at Cheyenne because it won't hurt her feelings. <laughs> you need to repent. And you're like, oh, who is this jerk? <laughs> right? <laughs> Pretty sure he needs to repent of his repenting, pointing finger. It has a bit of a bad rap, like feel bad, do better. But the Greek word used in the New Testament is metanoia. Metanoia meaning to have one's mind changed or to see the world differently. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus tells us that to enter his kingdom we must be born again or born from above by water and the Spirit. And the baptismal font for us is kind of the womb of this new life. To repent is to see the world with the mind of Christ. Rather than turning to the powers of this life, a world for life, i.e. the big seven that we heard at the beginning of the text, for peace, meaning wholeness, or turning inwards to our own strength. If confession means death, repentance means resurrection. New life new creation. It means living in the way of Jesus. The way in us is prepared by turning away from the powers of sin and death towards the living God. The way is prepared in us through repentance. God chooses not to be born where there's no room. God does not force God's way into our lives. But baptism, the baptismal life of continual repentance and forgiveness, this is how God makes a way in us, how God invades our lives and makes us new. Not through power or might or wealth or by our own strength, but by yielding all of these to Christ's power, strength, and might. And you know, this is a wise reminder during Advent because Advent is all about waiting, preparing, patiently setting the scene. The truth is that the Christian life is more often than not a slow drip. One where change can seem non-existent, one step forward, two steps back, and oh boy, the world doesn't seem like it's going in the right direction anywhere fast 
either. It can be disheartening. But our text tells us that this is the way God works. God works baptismal font style. God works slowly in drifts and in grabs. And though God may work slowly, the promise is that this slow baptismal drift will wear away our defenses and preoccupations to empty the manger and prepare the way for Christ to enter in us and our world. Through baptism, repentance, forgiveness. So friends, I'll just echo what John says. Prepare the way of the Lord. Repent. Be forgiven. Embrace God's newness here and now. Make straight his paths, because every valley shall be filled, and every mountain shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth, and all flesh shall sue the salvation of our God. Or in the words of a favorite Christmas carol, no ear may hear it is coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. <laughs>